Hello, and welcome to episode number 147 of the Northern Miner podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I'm the online editor of the Northern Miner, and I also take care of most of the social media. You can find us online at northernminer.com and on Twitter at Northern Miner, on Instagram at the Northern Miner, and on Facebook and LinkedIn. This week, we have our acting editor-in-chief and senior reporter, Trish Saywell, interviewing Darren Blasuti of America's Silver on macroeconomics and his thoughts on the silver price and how silver companies today are going to struggle. Just because the silver price is going up doesn't mean that most silver companies will necessarily follow due to high grading and bad times. So if you're a silver investor, you'll definitely want to hear this. And we also have a story on America's Silver on the website, and you can see the latest news on the Relief Canyon mine. They are going to pour first gold at the end of this year. So a lot going on there. Also on the website, you'll see a big story on the EPA removing proposed restrictions on mining operations in Alaska's Bristle Bay, which includes Northern Dynasty Minerals Pebble Project. Bristle Bay is home to the world's largest salmon run, so it's a controversial decision. Northern Dynasty's Pebble has been in the news for years now. If you look at the headline, uh, you'll see Obama-era regulations have basically been removed. So it's a controversial decision. Opponents include the United Tribes of Bristle Bay, a consortium of 15 tribal governments, which have called Pebble, quote, a toxic project that would, quote, destroy the world's last greatest sockeye salmon fishery for the project of a foreign mining company, close quote. Goes right to the heart of this, you know, tension between development and mining and economics and the environment, which is one of the big issues of our time. So here we got a little microcosm of this macrocosm issue. As well, we have a couple of new top 10 lists on the website. The most recent is top 10 US-based mid-tier and junior companies, and this excludes coal and precious metals. And this is quite interesting, particularly for if there are any left rare earth investors, and I think there are. And also for uranium investors, you'll see which companies are getting traction in the US. And this is particularly interesting in the context of the rare earths in China. If the trade war gets nasty, there's concern that China could limit rare earths. That would be a pretty big move. So we're not there yet, but this is something that people talk about. So if you're interested in which American-based companies are producing rare earths, then this is a pretty interesting little list. As well, we have a top 10 on the biggest Canadian headquartered mining companies with substantial assets in the U.S. So if you're wondering, naturally, Barrick Gold tops this list. But if you look at the rest of the list, it's actually a little surprising and quite interesting to see the order in which these companies come in. And there's nothing like looking at the data to see what's actually going on. And these aren't, you know, we, you, might think, you might think you know this stuff from data from six years ago or the last bull run. And, you know, the world is always changing. And so is the order of the size of these mining companies and just which is biggest, the biggest to smallest. So it's quite interesting to see the, these dynamics at work. So that's worth a look. And speaking of numbers, let's take a look at metal prices again, which are provided by our friends at InfoMine. And if, if we take a look, we see gold has shot past $1,500. It's at $1,527.38. This is on August 13th. Silver price is at $17.43. Again, another breakout from last week, another notch higher. Platinum is also up 
at $864. Aluminum is at 79 cents a pound. Copper is at $2.58, so a penny higher than last week. And crude oil is at $56.51, so it's down. If we look at a few other metals, if we look at palladium, it's up at $1,432.30. And we have lead up at 95 cents a pound. We have nickel at $7.09 per pound, and tin is down at $7.67 per pound. Cobalt is $12.93 per pound, and that is it for this week. So metals overall seem to be on the upswing. podcast is brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. That's a group of juniors with mines and advanced projects in the Yukon. Check out their website at yukonminingalliance.ca and their Twitter feed at investyukon. We'll take a small musical break and we're going to come back with Darren Blasuti, president and CEO of America's Silver with the Northern Miners, Trish Saywell. for the past month. I guess it's the beneficiary of an increasingly dovish monetary environment as central banks around the world cut interest rates and roll out bond buying programs to stimulate growth. Of course, the Fed cut rates by 25 basis points at the end of July. And on Wednesday, gold hit a high of $1,511 per ounce and silver hit a high of $17.31 per ounce. So what's your view on the dynamic going on in the precious metal space and where do you see the prices moving over the next six months or so? Sure. Well, first, uh, obviously, I'm, I'm not an economist, but I'll, I have been in the silver and gold industry now for 20 years. So for, for us, gold has moved very in a pretty big move in a very short period of time. I mean, even when you think back when we did the Pershing deal in October, gold was at 1182 an ounce, and we're sitting here today, you know, almost at $1,500, right? So it's been a very quick and abrupt move up. And to me, what's interesting about the move is that all of the factors that you read about what's caused the gold price to move, mm-hmm. whether it's trade barriers, tensions around U.S. and Iran, Brexit, you know, record debt levels, the U.S. having trillion dollar deficits, Fed easing, the stock market volatility, all of this has been around and understood for at least a year, maybe more. You know, even the Fed's move to, you know, an easing bias has been telegraphed for almost since the beginning of the year. You know, all that suggests that something else is going on for this move because, I mean, this has been around forever. And the other thing that really caught our eye was when gold roughly moved around about 1400 Ray Dalio, who's a obviously very famous hedge fund manager and manages, I think, north of $120 billion, went very public with his conviction on gold. And I think that was interesting to us because it's unlikely that, uh, that Bridgewater is the only global macro fund that's now starting to allocate towards gold. To me, this doesn't suggest a short-term move. I think, you know, you've had a move up to 1,500. People talked about breaking the 1,460 barrier, the latest barrier. 
even when we were at 1400, it tried to move back several times back below 1400 and it kind of held. So, you know, when we look at it, I think we're quite positive. And I think as we look forward for the next six months, you know, I think most people believe there'll be additional rate cuts beginning in September and potentially December. So I think for us, this sets up a stage for more quantitative easing, which I think is extremely bullish for gold and solar prices. Again, I think we're pretty bullish. Again, we'll see how 1500 is tested, but 1400 it materially tested three or four times and passed with flying colors. And then we saw a very quick move as a result of the trade war between China and the U.S. But I think, again, that's just you know, spooking, that's been around for a while. And I don't think that's going to end very quickly either. So, you know, we're, we're bullish for gold. I think silver, as you know, always follows gold. And typically it makes very sharp moves up in a shorter period of time. So it takes a little longer to move, but when it moves, it's quite dramatic in its move. And of course the gold, you know, silver ratio, you know, obviously is very close to an all-time record level, uh, negative towards silver, obviously. So we think the setup is, is very positive for silver. But my caveat is I think silver having a bit more industrial applications than gold. I think the trade war is impacting the move a bit. So again, I think, you know, if you saw gold hit 1400 and stay, then you saw it go 1500. I think people expected silver to move more and move quicker. But again, I do think the trade implications are creating a little bit more uncertainty around silver. We saw big silver buying in the ETFs at the beginning of July. So, listen, we think it's going to break out to a more traditional ratio like, you know, 60 to 70 to 1 from where we are at almost 90. But I think it's going to take a little more time. And it may potentially take the next level in gold above where we are now to make that silver move. And again, we're, we remain bullish on silver. We're obviously, we have a, a large chunk of our company with, you know, 125 million ounces in silver resources and reserves. We're, you know, excited for it to move. But, you know, moving a dollar fifty, as we talked about, doesn't always mean a lot in the short term for the producers. I think it gets people excited in the marketplace. But again, I think gold's going to move. Silver's going to be a bit muted as a result of this trade war, given its more industrial demand, what may you know, appear to be going into a recession or higher inflation. And so, again, I think silver will get there. I just think it will take a little bit more time. Yeah, and you said uh, when we talked the last time that, you know, you're, while you're excited about the silver market moving higher, you know, it's still got, quote, a long way to go before it impacts the bottom line, unquote, and that ultimately, you know, you need a price well north of 20 bucks an ounce before you have a real margin expansion in silver. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Uh, and I think just a little bit of history on silver. If you went back to the late 90s and early 2000s, other than Fresnillo and some of the Mexican companies, there wasn't a lot of pure place. In fact, there were no pure place silver players outside of Pan American mm-hmm. that were really in the North American markets. You had big assets like Cannington inside BHP. You had, you know, bigger assets inside Barrick or Goldcorp, but you didn't really have, you didn't really have a, many silver players to choose from. And then what happened is you're sitting in 2003 when gold prices are moving up. You see silver at five, six, seven dollars between 2000 and 2003. And then you see it go from that to $55 in 2011, in July, at the peak. And so what's happened is a number of these old silver assets or silver assets that were discarded by major mining companies because they couldn't make money became the corner pieces of First Majestic, Endeavor, a lot of these you know, bigger core, some of these guys who had been around for a long time but hadn't gotten any traction. And so you had silver prices move very dramatically and you had all of these, what I will call, assets that, that uh, weren't first-tier assets be- became built 
and operated in a very short period of time, a lot of them in Mexico, where we are, as a result of these really hot, the big movement in silver from, from that 5 to $7 range up to kind of 35 where it stayed for a bit. When did it get to 35 Gold went up to 55 but it kind of stabilized between 11 12 at $35. So it was, there was a very big trajectory in silver uh, in 2008, the financial crisis, it was about $15. And then it went literally between, you know, April 2009 through to July 2011 to $55. So you have this massive move and all of these silver assets or old development projects or old mines got rebuilt, got the capital, and these mines started up again. The problem was the silver, the high prices of silver didn't last very long. And then since then, we've had basically an eight-year bear market. And these assets were marginal to start with. So what's very interesting about the silver market, as we talked about, is it's obviously great to be off the lows of the mid-13s, and we're up to 17. That's great. But ultimately, these assets need much higher prices to actually make money, to make free cash flow. If you're not in Pinoles or you're not at Meg Silver or, or you know, two or have two-thirds of, uh, of Pan American's assets, the rest of the industry is $15, $16 all sustaining costs. And then you don't have G&A on top of that from the co- to run the public company. So then you're kind of above not only the published all and sustaining costs, you're kind of to make money as a company, you're kind of in that plus $16 mark. So, you know, getting to 17 is obviously very helpful. It's got people interested in the move in silver. But for the actual silver producers, there's not going to be a lot of bottom line free cash flow. It's going to take the pressure off having to continually raise equity, which we've all done year after year to survive. And the other thing that's happened is not just raising equity, but it's been high grading. And we've had to high grade the assets just to stay alive. So, you know, you had this impact. And so and I, when I talked to you, I said, you know, you looked at the gold price movement from 2003 to 2008 when I was at Barrick. All of the investors were, were complaining that gold went from 300 to 800 or 900, but there's been no margin expansion. And that's because we had 10 years of low gold prices. And again, you were bringing on more marginal ounces and in order to grow because suddenly generalists get interested in the sector and they all of a sudden they want growth. And so your growth ends up becoming more marginal ounces after you've been high grading for a whole lot of years. And so I think the same thing's going to happen in the silver industry. I think you're going to see, uh, in fact, I saw yesterday just that First Majestic is shutting down one of its assets. So you've had silver move from 15 to 17, 50, and I'm picking on First Majestic, they're a great company. But you can see that even though we've had a dollar or two move, people are still struggling. The second quarter was very difficult for silver companies. Silver price was very low. And as well, the trade war has impacted lead, zinc, and copper. And so any of the byproducts that you got, so you see all of the the silver producers having really high costs in the second quarter. And again, I think as you move out and say, where is that response going to be as silver prices move up? I think it's going to be very difficult for the silver industry to increase production because if you've been high grading for years, you've been doing that to survive and you haven't been spending capital and you haven't been drilling out any greenfield exploration, it's all been brownfield around the mine site, you've kind of taken those assets as far as they can go so they'll benefit from a bit higher silver price, but there's not going to be any growth. And that's why we're excited about the silver price because I don't think that producers can really do much about growing their not only their bottom line, but even their production. Mm-hmm. because we've been struggling for so long and there's been so little capital. So I think there's going to be a wave of higher prices in silver 
people getting into the silver stocks and expecting growth, and that growth is not going to be there. And any growth that comes is going to be higher cost than what people have been producing at. So that's why I think for the silver industry, you know, one, you've already got, you know, a very few amount of companies. And if you think about the guys that we had in the last phase of silver, the Heklas, the Coors, uh, the Tahoes, Hecla and Coor have gone to gold assets. Pan American's really the only company along with, say, Mag and Prismeo on the big side and you know, that have managed to stay silver only. Most of them have to go over to gold to kind of create value for their companies. And so for us from a silver perspective, again, I just I just think the market's very, very tough to bring on anything. And I, you know, our strategy had been to mine our base metals and keep our higher grade silver in the in the ground. So, you know, if you looked at our assets in 2014, we made the choice to go from, you know, mostly silver with a little bit of base metals and producing almost 4 million ounces of silver to producing a heck of a lot of base metals, almost 80 million ounces between silver and lead this year, but only 1.6 million in silver. So we've gone the opposite way because our view was we want to mine our highest grade silver when silver goes up, not when it goes down. We were lucky enough to be able to convert to base metals. You know, that's why I think we're going to be in a great position because while the rest of the silver guys have stayed, you know, have continued to high grade, we've actually done the opposite. And our grades are actually going up a little bit each year as we mine the lower grade. Again, I'm, I'm bullish on silver. I'm bullish on our company what we can do in silver. But I, th- I think the rest of the industry, you know, is going to struggle even at $17 silver. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is there anything uh, you wanted to add perhaps about the Relief Canyon mine that you're putting into production in the next uh, little while? When zinc was a, was a great trade in 2017 and the beginning of 2018, you know, we were this base metal company that had a lot of zinc exposure. So people didn't complain too much about our lack of silver production. And so when the trade war started kind of in April 2018 and the zinc trade came off, people started saying, you're not really a silver company. What you really are is a base metal company with silver byproducts. And we would argue that Listen, again, as I said, our strategy is to produce silver when silver's high and to produce our base metals when base metal prices are good. So we had this issue where we didn't want to bring on our silver production because, as you know, silver really hasn't moved very much, even though gold had moved. And so we found a gold asset, which at eleven, at, you know, $1,250 gold, I guess, had an NPV of almost $195 million. So this was a very attractive asset. We picked it up because one, it was we could make money at the asset, which is the most important thing. But secondly, when relief goes into production uh, at the end of this year, but gets into full production in the second quarter next year, we're going to be a 70% precious metal player again. And that was very important for us. When we started in the silver industry, we never realized we were going to be a big zinc and lead player. Uh, and we never thought we were going to get it so far away from being a precious metal company. But you know, from a business strategy perspective, it made no sense to produce silver when you couldn't make money. So what the gold asset does is it brings us back to being more of a precious metal company. It has an extremely high return, especially with gold prices at $1,500 now. You're talking about an IRR on the project of almost 150%. So a very high IRR on the project. And, and the third advantage we got is it allowed us to defer our silver to when silver prices would be higher. So we're still even this year and even at $17, we're still producing our lowest grade silver as opposed to our highest grade silver because we do believe, as we said, in the shorter to medium term, we think silver is going to increase dramatically. And then we want to bring that 
high grade silver production on. So it really, really Canyon had those three benefits, very, very high return. We rate us as a precious metal company and allow us to keep our silver in the ground longer as we weren't being criticized for not being a silver company. Again, for us, if you think about it, it's a 90,000 ounce a year producer at $800, according to the pre-feasibility state. You got a $700 margin on almost 600,000 ounces of gold recovered over the next six years. So it's going to be a huge project for us, for such a little company. We've only got 85 million shares outstanding. So the impact will be great. It'll increase our precious metal uh, revenue exposure by almost 500% next year and 600% in 2021. Uh, We're very excited about it. The project is on time and on budget, and, you know, it's going to generate a heck of a lot of cash flow. Yeah, and your timing was brilliant on that. We we were just trying to find an asset that made money, and sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Last week, U.S. President Donald Trump slapped a 10% tariff on a further $300 billion in Chinese imports that he said will start September the 1st, and he accused Beijing on top of that of being a currency manipulator. The new tariffs, are, of course, are on top of the 25% tariff on about $250 billion of Chinese imports he imposed earlier. And after news of the additional 10% tariff was reported, Xi Jinping allowed China's currency to weaken for the first time in more than a decade past the psychologically important level of 7 renminbi to the U.S. dollar. Uh, what impact do you think Trump's escalating trade war with China is going to have on precious metal prices, do you think? Again, I, I think the impact is is positive, and I think it's, it's very positive. And I'd also say, because we do produce some base metal, metal stuff too, it's, it's obviously creating a ton of uncertainty and volatility in base metal prices, as you've seen. But, you know, when you think about a trade war with China, you know, there's been an arrangement between China and the U.S. for decades. And, you know, these large trade deficits with China basically have been recycled into large Chinese holdings of U.S. government bonds. And so they're holding a lot of U.S. dollars. And, you know, the U.S. is trying to devalue their currency, given their trillion-dollar debts. The Chinese want a weaker yen to be continue to be competitive. And if you think about what's happened over, you know, 20 or 30 years, there's been a real erosion in the U.S. manufacturing sector. And so cheaper Chinese labor moved production out of the U.S., And this was a great platform for President Trump uh, during the election to kind of stimulate kind of the the middle class and people that worked in manufacturing that this has to stop. So what's interesting is I'm not sure that either side can afford to blink here. You know, our particular view is this is going to go on for a long time. I think when the U.S. flexed its muscle in the 80s against Japan, Japan's economy and, and just its socioeconomic, not very many people, really had no choice but to blink with the U.S. China is not going to back down. And, you know, again, I think if the trade war deepens and continues, I think central banks, they'll have to continue the economic expansion. I think if the tariffs actually are imposed on September 1st, I think we could see another big, big move in the gold price. So, you know, and then and you look at the bigger picture, we talk about, you know, um, not, you know, the trade war and why it was, it was really populist government, right? It was really... The, the, you know, Trump using the deficits as a reason to kind of get elected. So if you look at that populism rising, it's very inflationary. And so, again, I think all of these things are very, very good factors for a great gold price and, and then eventually a great silver price. One of the problems with being in the gold industry is you're cheering for things to go bad sometimes. But it's certainly not the case here. But I, but I don't think either side is going to back down. I do think on September 1st, you know, Trump can't look weak in, you know, getting ready for an election. 
as the election, you know, even though it's more than 12 months away, starting uh, again, I, I think you're going to see this imposed, and I think it's going to be really good for for the gold and, and precious and silver prices. And you also saw, saw yesterday that the central banks in India, Thailand, and New Zealand also cut their interest rates in what some people are saying is, you know, are, is a defensive action uh, amid sure. fears of worsening U.S.-China tensions. I mean, I, I just don't think that can be very good for anyone. No, and again, so they're all, they're all reducing rates because they've all got, you know, they're all trying to not go into a recession, right? I mean, sure. everybody's trying to stop the recession from coming. And sometimes, you know, you wonder... Like when you had Greece go bankrupt, if it's not just better to ha let the bankruptcy happen, let the purge happen, and then kind of come out the other side. But again, they keep delaying. So the longer they've delayed, the longer they delay the inevitable, you know, higher that's going to send gold and silver prices. So again, we're obviously bullish. We, we obviously are buying assets. We're looking for acquisitions. We think prices are going to go higher. We still think there's a major disconnect between valuations of gold and silver companies and where the prices are. I, but again, I, I think... This trade war is not going to end. You know, Trump basically based his election on the back of making America great again and backing down on tariffs and not getting what he views as a win or what the, the market's going to view as a win. And the Chinese, they're the biggest economy in the world. And so ultimately, they can't blink either. So I, I think this goes on for a bit. And I certainly think this happens on September 1st. And I think if you see that, we'll have a very good start to the fourth, you know, the, the new, what we call the new uh, season when everybody gets back from holidays in uh, August in, uh, in the major markets. And so we're, we're excited about it. Do you see the Fed lowering interest rates again anytime soon? Yeah, again, I, I think we're, I think they pointed to September. Again, if, if, if you think about it, you get, if you get a September 1st, tariff imposed and the market's going the other way, there's no doubt there's going to be a rate cut. And we think the, the rate cut's going to happen in September. And we're, we're bullish on potentially a December rate cut too. So we're, again, I, you know, I said silver prices needed a, a, another move up in gold. And I think that may be it. You know, we're kind of going to hang around this $1,500 hopefully, but I think you could get a real move again. And, uh, and, and I think it would be as big a move as you saw in 2008-9. So um, we're 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 pretty bullish short term. Okay, great. Thanks, Darren. Appreciate it. Chris. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. does it for this episode of the Northern Miner podcast. As always, you can help the podcast by giving us a review or liking it or sharing it online, or you can tell your friends in the mining industry about it. All these things help raise the profile of the podcast and the Apple podcast directory. So again, feel free to leave a review there. And let's give one last thank you to our longtime podcast sponsor, the Yukon Mining Alliance. That's all for now. Until next week, take care. <laughs>